Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Fago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. The United States passed 900,000 deaths at the end of the week with the daily rate of some 2,600 fatalities, the highest since the pandemic began, overwhelmingly among the unvaccinated as uh, the rate of new infections, however, plunges sharply, raising hope that this latest wave is passing. Despite the Omicron wave, the U.S. economy continues to surge with the best jobs and economic growth figures in some four decades, all of which are contributing to inflation as leading companies like Boeing, Raytheon, and Tesla all have raised supply chain problems. Central bankers are raising interest rates more quickly to reduce monetary supplies, but not quick enough for some of our panelists uh, as uh, more leading U.S. companies posted earnings like Spirit Aerosystems. Joining us today, as they do every week, uh, to discuss all of this and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tuza of the independent research firm Agency Partners uh, in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy here in sunny Washington, D.C. Everybody, welcome back to the program. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, thanks very much indeed, Vago. Great to be here. Happy weekend, Vago. Great to be here. Everybody, uh, welcome again. Uh, before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And Huntington Ingalls Industries sponsored our recent coverage of the Surface Navy Association's annual conference and trade show. And check out our weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on maritime uh, and naval issues each week and the downlink uh, with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things uh, space each week. Um, Ron, uh, start us off another roller coaster week uh, on Wall Street. What were some of the dynamics and factors driving the group? Obviously, we had earnings uh, reported. We had a, a little bit of M&A uh, and, and future business activity. Uh, and of course, central bankers tightening up uh, interest. And, and then we had, you know, really, really good jobs numbers, right? I mean, the street was expecting a much smaller number, not 467, I think, uh, and, and the kind of growth uh, that, that we've been seeing. Sort of walk us through what was driving investors. Yeah, so I think one, one of the big factors and you know, something we've been tracking every week here is if you look at the 10-year yield, the 10-year yield closed the week above 1.9%. Um, and in fact, it's the highest it's been since um, since the pandemic, right? So we're almost well, we're back to pre-pandemic levels and, and climbing. Um, just uh, uh, Bank of America, our economist is saying that you're going to see seven rate increases, one at each Fed meeting going forward. Uh, and, and the market's starting to contemplate that. And, the, and the, really the broader debate is soft landing versus not so soft landing, is the Fed um, behind the eight ball or not? Um, as I've mentioned in the past, uh, I was have been expecting inflation to kind of go and the Fed to act quicker, but uh, the market's trying to digest that. That combined with a pretty volatile tech world, and you have big names like uh, I guess what was Facebook, I'm going to call it Meta today. I don't know. I don't follow it very close, but um, you know, they reported it was down almost 25%. That's a big piece of market cap. So you got that sort of stuff moving around. In our world, um, it was a, a better week for commercial aerospace than it was for defense. Uh, you know, Boeing was up almost 8% on the week. A lot of that had to do with the, the Qatar news that we'll talk about. The S&P was up about a percent and a half. Raytheon Technologies was up 3%. Spirit Aerosystems of sort of the big bigger names that are, are more widely traded. It was up almost 13% uh, on a quarter they reported this week. We can you know peel back the onion on that if you want a little bit later. Lockheed was down a percent. Uh, L3 Harris was down two and a half percent. So it was kind of mixed. Uh, and and we'll, we'll see where we go from here. But I think that the debate will be and will continue to be for quite some time. Do we have a friendly Fed, a friendly Fed or a less friendly Fed? I can't speak today. I'm sorry. Do we have a, a friendly Fed or a less friendly Fed uh, to the market around what it's going to do with interest rate policy going forward? One other point I would add, it's not just the Fed. As the Fed starts raising rates, it right. puts pressure on all the major uh, central banks around the world. And I think that's 
really the source of investment jitters right now. Um, and I, I should point out, right, I mean, uh, European uh, central bankers, British central bankers are already moving. Uh, and Sash will talk about this uh, in, a, in a moment as well, right, uh, to sort of, uh, because everybody's been pumping a lot of money into the economy. And, and I'm not lawyering at all for Jerome Powell. But he has been talking about, you know, and telegraphing, uh, you know, you, you know what I mean? I mean, it's sort of funny how you telegraph quantitative easing is being wound down and the market seems to be surprised that quantitative easing is reduced or, hey, we're going to have to int raise interest rates sooner. And then he starts doing it and they're like, oh, my God, he's raising interest rates. I mean, it's sort of OK. I mean, why, I know, how much telegraphing do you need? I mean, I, I know you want to make as much money to that ragged edge as you can, but, it, you know, eventually the rates go up and they're, you know, and then, and then that's the, uh, that's the, the new consensus. There was a lot of other news flow. I want to get to earnings uh, in a moment. Well, what were some of the other interesting things, right? I mean, uh, we saw moves uh, on Bombardier by the Canadian government, you know, walk us through some of all of the other uh, little drips and drabs, and then we'll talk about earnings and then we'll go to Sash to give us sort of the European perspective, but sort of lay out a couple of other things uh, that are on your mind that caught your attention. Yeah, I mean, there was there was a bunch of uh, interesting things that that happened this week. Um, one, the, the Quebec the Quebec government um, re-upped its investment in the A220. Um, <clears throat> long story short, they have a twenty five percent share, uh, and they're putting one point two billion into the program. Um, Sash can probably tell us what he thinks Airbus would do with that, but it's an, it's a it's one point two billion. It's a nice nice investment. Um, just to be compare and contrast, you know, Boeing put the, put half a billion into WISC. So, I don't know, whatever. You make your judgment call there. Um, Qatar, uh, with their order for 777X Raiders and their MOU for 737 MAX 10s, uh, we can talk about that. Uh, and, and, and really the implication, 777X Raider, why it's happening, why it's happening now, IKO rules, and what that really means for the, the, the classic 777 and 767 Freighter. Um, other things that happened this week that I think are important, um, you have um, at, at, um, at Mantech a, a potential change in the control structure of the company. Um, that's something we can talk about. That's, that's important. Why don't we just uh, tackle that really uh, quickly now? Um, sure. And uh, Richard is going to lead us off on the conversation on the 777. Uh, and also, right, the extraordinary decision by Airbus uh, to sort of not sell airplanes uh, to uh, to Qatar, but talk about uh, George Peterson, right? I mean, he was the co-founder of the company uh, and he's got a very, very big stake and he wants to move that stake. Yeah, it was, it was announced that potentially he wants to do that. Um, he has 13.2 million Class B shares. That's a third of the total equity ownership of the company, but more importantly, that's 83% of the votes. So if indeed he were to do that, that changes the potential strategic opportunities that the company has in front of it. Um, so, you know, translation, could they be taken out? Sure, they could now. I mean, that, and that's something that uh, might not have been the case before. Um, they have an interesting portfolio. They're a little different than some of the other um, IT services uh, companies. Um, so it, it really kind of changed the dynamic there. And you saw the stock react to that this week. So uh, that, that was probably one of the more interesting pieces of news, uh, I think, that happened during the week. Uh, and uh, walk us through... Uh, earnings, right? I mean, we saw Spirit uh, report uh, not as bad on 787 than I think everybody had, had hoped. Walk, walk us through some of the big names, right? Because we had, you know, pretty much all the majors report last week. Yeah. So Spirit reported, and unlike Boeing, they've been, I think, more prudent with taking charges on the 787 program as time has gone on. And, you know, they their charge on the 787 impact was. Uh, tens of millions of dollars. I think it was like 35 million, if I remember correctly. It wasn't a heck of a lot relative to 3.5 billion plus 2 billion more at, at Boeing, right? So it was a, a very manageable size charge. And then the other pieces there that I think that were very encouraging, um, they have had success changing the profile of the company, right? I mean, it was a company at one point that was really just all Boeing. Now, you know, they're, they're going to be about 40% OE, 40% aftermarket, and 20% defense, just just in you know the very near future. So they've done, a, I think, a, a pretty um, remarkable job diversifying out the company, and, and that's that's one of the things I think investors have wanted to see for a long time, and, and I think that was reflected in the results as well. Uh, also uh, this week, um, both Howman and Allegheny Technologies reported, and they're both you know key participants in the metallic side of the supply chain, um, and you know Allegheny's. Uh, outlook was, I think, much better than people were looking. That was reflected in the, in the shares. I think the shares were up almost in the mid-teens this week. 
uh, Helmet was about what folks were looking for. One of the concerns has been in castings. Um, Helmet leadership uh, suggested that you know, the leadership in the industry that's saying castings is a problem suggested for Helmet it's not a problem, but maybe that doesn't mean it's problems other places. There's other folks that do, uh, that do castings that we know. Uh, and then finally, um, Honeywell did report, as did Mercury Systems. And the big surprise is there, you know, Mercury's all defense and Honeywell's got a defense unit. Uh, I think uh, Honeywell's defense unit, uh, if I remember properly, year on year organically was down, I think 18, 17, 18%. Uh, and Mercury Systems was down something mid-teens, I think it was 13%. And if you compare that to other companies that make defense hardware, um, that, that's a, a, a steeper decline than we've seen anywhere uh, in the industry, if you know the biggest comp for Mercury Systems would be Curtis Wright in their defense business, and they were, I think, flattish in the quarter. And, and um, if we'd seen declines in companies that make hardware, it's low single digits. It's not those kind of big numbers. We've seen those kind of numbers in the services companies, but that tends to be with the dynamics of the business and the continuing resolution and how short duration their backlogs are. Um, so, you know, on that front, I think you know it was it was a bit mixed. Um, Sash, uh, let me bring you uh, into the discussion. Obviously, uh, a lot of uh, European uh, news and how uh, the group uh, performed on European markets, right? Uh, uh, even if Russia is not invading Ukraine, as we heard from Boeing, uh, concerns that, uh, you know, Russia, Russia sanctions are going to impact uh, their business base. Unfortunate for the company, given that China, you know, China is impacting their business in a meaningful way uh, as well on the other side of the, of, of the planet. Uh, and then everybody here in the United States is looking at what's going to happen, and I'm sure everybody in the United Kingdom is looking at what happens next with Boris Johnson uh, in the wake of uh, the the gray uh, inquiry last week. Uh, and also some rumors that there could be a change uh, in the cabinet, um, you know, good for NATO, maybe less good for UK defense. Walk us through each one of these storylines uh, that we're seeing and, and, and your sense on what the key drivers are and what the outcomes may be. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. Um, so, I mean, there, there, there is a huge amount to cover. If I can just actually just um, uh, touch on the point that uh, Ron made about the A220 and what the Quebec government is doing, and actually what Airbus is going to do with a billion two of R&D for the A220, uh, our guess is that they've just launched the A220-500, and that is a 737 MAX 7 killer. Um, A220 at the moment, uh, at its longer longer fuselage variant, the Dash 300, just touches the, uh, the 737 MAX at its uh, smallest fuselage variant. It's a bit, you know, it's, it's about the same range. Uh, it's clearly a lighter uh, aircraft. It's a more modern aircraft, um, and it's got very, very good fuel burn. But if you look at the, um, the Dash 500, the Dash 500, which is one of those derivatives that Airbus has been, they've been keeping that one in their back pocket for uh, pretty much since they bought uh, the uh, what was then the Bombardier AC series, that would give 150 plus, probably 160 seats uh, at maximum uh, density, um, 3,300 nautical miles of range, a bit less than a Mach 7, uh, but it's a much lighter, or it should be a much lighter machine. Look at the um, the empty weights. The uh, A220-300, empty weight 35 tonnes, max 7, 45 tonnes. Um, Let's assume that the empty weight of the uh, the 22500 goes up by two and a half tons, possibly, but it's only a couple of fuselage barrels. Um, it's you know you've still got seven tons uh, to spare, and that I think is going to be a very very economical aircraft. Airbus has been very coy about the A22500, but I think the fact that the, the Quebecers are saying yeah you know we're in, and this is the this is how much we're prepared to put into it. We've estimated that further derivatives of the A220 would be a, a minimum of 2 billion. Well, it looks like uh, Quebec is going to pay more than half of that, which is a, a great deal for Airbus. Um, so other European um, news flow. Uh, yeah, you know, Russia, and actually more importantly, the impact of the Russian-led tensions in the Ukraine on gas prices have certainly affected uh, European stocks. I'm very surprised at Boeing blaming Russia, though, for um you know, commercial problems. We've did quite a lot of work on uh, civil aircraft, Western civil aircraft sales to uh, Russia. And since 2003, I mean, just to give you the uh, the Airbus numbers, because there's much greater clarity in where these things go to, um, they've delivered a total of about 100 and 170, 180 aircraft. 
uh, to Russian uh, airlines. Clearly more go through leasing companies. But this is a, a market which at its peak tends to be a 25 aircraft a year market. So to, to blame Russia for, for you know, uh, commercial problems, I'm, I'm surprised by that. I'll, I'll leave that one there. Um, three or two and a half other things then. One corporate issue that actually has been quite interesting this week is Thales, the French defence electronics uh, company, has been rumoured and, and put out a, a very firm denial, which normally means, in, in our view, that something's happening, um, that they are interested in the cybersecurity business of another French company, uh, Atos. Um, and this would be quite interesting because cybersecurity is seen by the French government more than most as being sovereign strategic capability. Thales would be a very clearly a very attractive bidder for that, therefore. But on the other hand, the French government quite likes having independent French companies around, and one French company taking over another French company. You know, there are limits to, to the great degree to which that actually adds value to France itself. Um, this would be a big deal. This would be a three billion euro deal, probably. Um, uh, Thales denied it. We'll see. But it clearly shows what their appetite is. And given that Thales is generating cash at the moment and will be, in our view, net cash by uh, the end of the current financial year, um, they probably need to think about their capital allocation. Question, is cybersecurity the right thing? Um, Gemalto, which uh, is the business that uh, Thales bought about five years ago, um, has a big cybersecurity and biometrics content to it. It's been, frankly, a pretty underwhelming acquisition. Doing another one like that on the basis that A, it's French, and B, it's cybersecurity, I, I can't get enthusiastic about that. Uh, I suspect we'll, we'll hear more when Thales reports their full year results in about another, um, another three weeks. I've been trying to put off talking about British politics, but uh, I realise that, you know, that that is impossible. Um, <clears throat> Boris Johnson's had a dreadful couple of weeks. Um, in my personal view, deservedly so, um, utterly deservedly so. Uh, he is in huge trouble. Um, this week, the you know the most interesting things were the degree to which his inner circle started to um, bail and uh, desert him. He sacked a couple of um, uh, senior staffers, but three more uh, left of their own volition, including one who had been um, a key advisor for. Uh, nearly 15 years, that does not send a good signal about how he does politics and how people see him uh, doing politics. And a number of Conservative MPs are starting to say enough is enough. And, you know, I, Conservative MP, have no confidence in him. I would caveat all of this. I mean, it, it, you know, it looks like he's dead in the water. I would caveat this by saying that it is incredibly difficult, even for the Conservative Party, which has a clear mechanism for this, to get rid of their leader. And MPs prefer not to do that in the Conservative Party until they can see who might be a successor and they can see why that successor might be a, um, you know, better than the, uh, than the incumbent. It's not obvious at the moment who the, who the successor might be. There are a couple of uh, obvious candidates, Lynn Truss, the Foreign Secretary, um, Rishi Sunak, the um, Chancellor of the Exchequer. They are both, from the point of view of Conservative MPs who are concerned whether they will retain their seats or not at the next general election, they're both pretty flawed. They're neither of them proven winners. Uh, they're neither of them, uh, you know, poll in an in, in a in a conclusive way that they are, that they are um, better than Johnson in that respect. So I would be very very careful about um, thinking that Johnson is going to be out. You know, this week, next week, sometime. Um, these things tend to take a lot, of, a much longer than uh, we, particularly in the chattering classes, would like to think. Working backwards, if something is going to happen, and you know, is it fifty fifty? Might be a bit more than that, but if something is going to happen, the the key dates are the Conservative Party conference at the very beginning of October. Clearly, you want as a an MP, as a party member, you want the new leader, any new leader, in in position by then. Um, but that means that the uh, the votes um, are sometime in August, uh, which is a pretty lousy time to get members to vote. Which means that the MPs should be voting June, July, 
that's a long way to long time to wait given where we are at the moment um, and uh, last word, one of the uh, great elements of the British, uh, of the Johnson administration is Ben Wallace, uh, who has been uh, an extraordinary defense secretary, really in the mold of uh, George Robertson. Um, talk that he may actually be headed to Brussels. Talk us through what that is. Yes, but, but um, actually, um, uh, technically, Mons rather than Brussels. Um, uh, there I are... stand, yes, I stand corrected. Well, <laughs> there, 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 there are rumours, and rumours tend to be well-sourced, uh, that um, Ben Wallace is being sounded out um, and other NATO members are sounding out their colleagues as to whether he would be a, uh, a suitable successor to uh, Stoltenberg, who's the current uh, head of NATO. Um, Stoltenberg is going off to be head of the Norwegian Central Bank, which I think will be a slight, well, marginally less stressful job. It'll involve less travel anyway. Um, uh, but he's done uh, a very, very good five years, and I think has actually been been very good in the current crisis. Ben Wallace would be a, a very good uh, NATO Secretary General, and I think you're absolutely right, in the, in the mould of George Robertson. I think it would be dreadful for the UK, because I think he's a really good Secretary of State for Defence. I don't want to lose him. Uh, but you can understand how, having done the job for, uh, you know, three years, and actually he's been a uh, security minister for seven years now, I think, um, you can understand he might actually want to, um, uh, you know, the slightly bigger but um, slightly less politically fraught job as uh, Secretary General of, of NATO. Um, we'll see. It's a really interesting process. There's no election or anything. It has to be done by private consensus among all the members so it's more like electing a pope than anything else and we just have to wait until the color of the smoke changes um i i think that he would do uh, a terrific job uh for the alliance and he is a first uh, first rate thinker um uh and that's evident uh, whether you're listening to him in public and a leader and evident when you're listening to him in public uh, or in private uh richard you've been very very patient uh thanks for holding on as we dug through all of uh, all of that news. Uh, ask you, you know, what you thought were the most interesting news flow items, and then get your take on Qatar's triple seven order. And more importantly, something which I've been meaning to ask you for the last couple of weeks is, would it Airbus's cancellate? You know, I mean, this. You know, we talked about how ugly the spat had gotten between Qatar and Airbus, and I don't have many um, examples I can cite of how a major manufacturer takes a key client and cancels their order. Um, and, you know, because that sort of thing signals potentially problematic news to other airlines, right? Even if you, you, you think Al-Bakr is a strong cup of tea, uh, you know, he's being unreasonable, what have you, right? I mean, the customer tends to be always right. Um, sometimes- Well, Falco, Falco, right. a strong cup of tea is, is praise in my language. Uh, I, I I understand uh, in in our great language uh, in our great country, uh, Sash. Uh, strong cup of tea can be somewhat less than good, uh, but I appreciate the original intent of the phrase. Richard, beverage-based metaphors notwithstanding, yeah, there's a lot to discuss. It was an interesting week. I'm not so sure I'm with uh, Sash on the A22500. I think it's a matter of time, but I don't think they're there yet. And this looked like capital spending that was associated with the learning curve and ramping up production at not one, but two FACOs. And I'm not really familiar with any programs, um, maybe going back to like the 80s, that have had two FACOs out of the box the way the 220 does. Uh, and that's, of course, for trade reasons, because they had to build a new FACO in Mobile, Alabama, because of uh, Delta and because of the U.S. trade complaint against Canada. So I'm not 100 percent. Now, I, I am 100 percent with Sash that when the Dash 500 comes, it's a real problem for Boeing because it does represent a threat to the Max 8, which, as far as I can tell from the results, one of the only places they're making money in any uh, significant area. Um, and, you know, while it can't quite match the capability, it's going to have really good economics. Uh, but of course, from the standpoint of timing, they don't want to cannibalize the 320neo order backlog, which is just getting going. So I'm not 100% sure that this is non-recurring associated to the Dash 500. I, I think the simplest explanation is just facilitizing for two lines and getting them to 10 and then 14 per month, uh, which has been a slow going process for the A220. Um, so much more to talk about. Triple uh, seven, you know, freighter, it was pretty clear that Boeing just doesn't want to spend money, period, aside mysteriously from this whisk mechanical contraption with, you know, 
maybe some possibility of autonomy in a few decades. That was a baffling investment to me. What's just as baffling is they didn't want to be more aggressive about developing the 777F. Actually, I, I probably, or XF, I probably shouldn't be that baffled. There's also the problem that, you know, they're, they're doing okay with the, three, with the Dash 200F. And why risk that, especially since that it's part of keeping the line going until the X comes online in theory in 2024. Uh, so I, I understand there again, um, to put it back in the other hand, you know, the great Eisenhower expression, I want to be a one-handed economist, uh, to put it back in the other hand, you know, they, they have to stop building these things, 777 current F model and 767F around 2028, because I think after that, unless they do some serious modifications, uh, then it's no longer legal to build them under uh, under IKEA rules and whatever else. So they had to do this sooner or later. Obviously, Qatar got them into it. Part of it, I'm sure, was, of course, the bad blood with Airbus. I think just as much of it, though, is that the 777 is such a known quantity for Qatar. And some of these orders weren't orders. They were conversions of 200F orders, which, of course, is what Boeing was trying to avoid. Um, but you've got a situation where they're a you know, sizable installed fleet in Qatar. And uh, not only that, they're familiar with them and they can switch orders back and forth between the two types, probably at no cost. So I, I think it was probably a no brainer relative to the 350 um, freighter concept. Um, and, and well, uh, what else was there to talk about? Sorry. <laughs> Anything else that you thought was interesting, Richard Alafia? Although I do want to uh, move, uh, if you're if you're if you're through with your uh, discourse, um, to get everybody's take, and maybe uh, Richard, if you want to start us off and kind of go around the horn on inflation and, and the impact of inflation and of rising rates on the sector, right? I mean, Sash, excuse me, uh, Ron uh, talked about it, right? I mean, he's been pushing, uh, and as we've been discussing this for many, many weeks, for higher rates faster in order to try to cool the economy down a little bit more, more quickly. I think that the Fed is, uh, you know, as everybody on this call knows, uh, whether they're sitting in a C-suite uh, in, a, in a national capital or anywhere else, uh, that central bankers are trying to do this without cooling uh, economic growth, right? Throwing too much water uh, on raging economic uh, uh, success. Um, how is this going to be affecting the group uh, over, overall, whether on the air carrier side of things or whether on the manufacturing side of things? Well, you know, my big thesis has been that there's a risk that the defense side of things crowds out the commercial side of things because that's still a cost plus environment. Now, obviously, it's going to erode buying power in terms of defense investment funding. So you might get fewer things for a given dollar. But nevertheless, everything stays in place in terms of dollar spent and profit made. You know, it, it, if you have to hire more people or buy more materials at an inflated price, it gets reimbursed. That's not true in the commercial sector. There's some at some stages of the supply chain pass through provisions for inflation, but sometimes there isn't, especially when it comes to labor. And the other thing I always, you know, in addition to that crowding out effect, the other thing I'm very concerned about in this industry is this is the only time I think in our lifetimes that aviation hasn't been on the leading edge of the economic recovery. Uh, normally we're right up front and here, oh my God, we're being outpaced by everybody from people who make air hockey tables to people who make lawn furniture to people who make cars. and that means we as an industry, commercial aviation, are going to be last in line to place orders for stuff, hire people. And I think Boeing has started to recognize this. You know, eight, seven or eight months ago, I had conversations with people saying, I don't know what's going on. They're not ordering stuff. Apparently, they're starting to order stuff. But they're also just starting to hire people in the midst of a rather inflationary labor market. And again, we've never faced this situation before. We are on the, the bleeding edge, not the leading edge of an economic recovery. And I think there could be some substantial uh, consequences of, of inflation moving forward. Another thing is that I expected pricing to firm up just a little bit last year of jetliners um, because it had to, right? And also because 2020 was so awful from a pricing envi environment, if only in part because of the MAX disaster and of course the MAC clause that we've spoken about at length that allowed contract, you know, allowed clients to renegotiate prices. But, but apparently did not. Apparently pricing wasn't great at all last year, just getting the information, which means you've got that unhealthy combination of inflationary pressures of being last in line to order stuff and having to compete with the defense side of things. Um, 
coupled with, you know, frankly, asset prices, jetliner prices that are not increasing in line and possibly even decreasing. So that's all very concerning. And concerning the crowding out effect, come to think of it, this is a conversation we've had for years now that you meet a lot of people who've left Boeing and gone to Northrop Grumman to work on the B-21 bomber program, you know, or the Joint Strike Fighter program at Lockheed Martin or, or what have you. And that's clear evidence that, you know, that's, it's not just that there's this loss of talent to, to companies that can pass the bill onto the taxpayer, it's also when they do come back, as the commercial market continues to ramp up, we hope, um, they have to hire some people back. And it's going to be at inflated prices because, well, that's just where we are in terms of the economy and in particular, the, the aerospace and defense industry. Ron, uh, your sense on sort of the overall impact on, on the group of inflation, uh, you know, rising interest rates and how much is too much, right? I mean, what is, you know, as, as Richard said, we're deeper into this economic recovery, I think, than people recognize, right? I mean, it's been kind of rolling for a while now. Um, I mean, you can look at this as as one long, you know, it's had a little bit of up and downs, but, you know, you go back to uh, the, the global financial crisis, and uh, basically we've been gaining ground uh, ever since, uh, despite pandemic, despite other uh, challenges, despite uh, tr- trade uh, concerns and right, I mean, ongoing tariff wars, uh, and and the economy has kept going in part because central b- banks had a very cheap money uh, approach uh, until very recently. I mean, where where how do you see this sort of unfolding uh, for for the group? And then Sash, want to get yours from a European perspective, uh, given that I think that folks, um, you know, in general are are more focused on what the Fed is doing, for example, than what the ECB or the Bank of England is doing. I think Richard's, I mean, Richard's point of view is, I think, right on. Um, the, the only things I could, I could add to that are um, even in defense where it's not exactly cost plus, right? So there are fixed price contracts in defense. When those contracts go up for renewal, it, it's hard for me to say, I mean, I don't see the defense department saying, no, we're not going to you know, take the higher aluminum price or the labor costs. So um, those even in the fixed price contract environment, there's a lag, but those costs will those costs will get passed through. So defense, you know, full on cost plus or in a fixed price environment still can kind of pass things up. Um, you know, the the, you know, the worry in commercial, I think you know Richard w- was was exactly that on. Um, you hear mixed views among the larger suppliers. Um, that they're, you know, they, I think across the board, they're all saying they have some challenges, but where the challenges live and what they are exactly, um, you, you're hearing a little bit of, of mixed views from the suppliers. When you dig down deeper into the supply chain, what you're hearing is, you know, you have, you have smaller suppliers who put a contract in place and now their aluminum prices are 20% higher or their labor costs are, are higher and they're going to knock on the door of their customer and say, hey, we got we to gotta readjust this thing. Um, so we're, that's just kind of playing through the system now, you know, Boeing has the, the advantage, um, I would argue, um, unfortunate advantage actually, in this case, there's so much inventory laying around the Boeing company in terms of airplanes and airplane bits and pieces that they've got a bit of a buffer for this for a while. And they I think they even admitted that, um, so sooner or later, this will catch up with them. The risk for them is because they got this buffer that they're not going to act quickly now and it just kind of bites them harder later. So we'll see how they manage that. Um, and then and then ultimately, I think from a, an air travel perspective, and I don't want to be Debbie Downer, and I'm definitely not calling this, but one of the things that you're hearing debated in the market, are we staring at, is it next year or the following year, depending on what the Fed does, a recession? And in that environment, you've got companies potentially going through recession with extended balance sheets. And in a recessionary world, we're back to kind of the traditional, you know, as economic growth slows, so does the number of flyers, right? And so you, you have to deal with all that. Um, you know, I hope that's not the scenario that plays out. And that's not my base case, but that is a case that is being bounced around in the markets. One thing, right? It goes back to Warren Buffett's adage, right? When the tide goes out, you see who's been swimming naked, right? And actually a lot more folks might be a lot more naked than people thought they were, ultimately. Just say, as you would say, Ron, just saying. <laughs> Sash. <laughs> that, that's a hard adage to follow, but I'll try. Um, I, I, I tend to, to um, uh, tell towards Ron's you know, uh, view, actually, that the, in, in the European context, it, 
interest rates are interest rates are rising interest rates and UK has now had two uh, interest rate increases clearly going to be more this uh, this year um, Europe uh, European Central Bank not yet but um, they have have stopped ruling uh, interest rate uh, increases out uh, that that's good enough for me um, interest rate increases will ultimately affect the affordability of aircraft uh, so it has a big macro impact on the uh, civil aircraft market. Uh, the civil aircraft market has been fueled, among other things, by unbelievably cheap capital. Capital ain't going to be so cheap probably by the end of this year. And that, I think, is going to, you know, that's going to mean that uh, leasing companies are not so easily able or so cheaply able to refinance uh, to do sell and lease backs as they have done. And every little bit doesn't help uh, there. So I worry about that. But actually, the companies that we're talking to at the moment are not mentioning interest rates. They're, they're mentioning much broader supply chain problems. Um, you know, whether it's it was semiconductors in the last quarter, in the current quarter, it's much more uh, metals, costs, you know, staff and personnel and so forth. Um, and therefore, you know, the you know the the thesis that actually this is a uh, a sector which is lagging the economic recovery rather than leading it I, is, is one I have a, a great deal of time for. I'd just like to follow up on um, Richard's points on Qatar and more broadly on, you know, why on earth is Airbus doing this? Um, we wrote, we wrote uh, a note this week where we sort of uh, looked at this in, in passing. And our conclusion is that just at the moment, two things. One, Airbus is not terribly afraid of Boeing. They don't see uh, Boeing being able to overtake them in terms of uh, production rates. They don't see Boeing being able to outcompete in terms of better aircraft across the board, because at the moment it's a narrow body market. So if you've got the A321, um, you're fine. You're absolutely fine. And a few wide body orders, plus or minus, is not going to change the equilibrium very much. Um, and then you get to the issue of Airbus and Qatar. Airbus, in our view, is so... Uh, I mean, they, you know, they have they have history, and it's not good history with Qatar. Um, remember that Qatar, very at the very last moment, tried to reject the very first deliveries of A three fifties for you know uh, for supposed quality problems. That was a pricing negotiation, like all. And Airbus takes the view almost everything to do with Qatar is a pricing negotiation, uh, and Airbus has just and, got bored of bored of that. And and, 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 I, and I should and I should point out, right, particularly resents. The pricing negotiation from being portrayed as a quality problem. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think it's fascinating that Airbus, at this stage of the market uh, or this stage of the cycle, is able to say, Qatar wants one of the biggest buyers of wide bodies. We don't need you. In fact, we need you less than you need our A321s. And um, you know, if we have to 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 go through this upturn, not getting any orders from Qatar, yeah, we can probably manage that. It's an astonishing. Um, indication of how unimportant Airbus thinks Gulf widebody orders are going to be and how little they want to, to be involved in continual, continual price negotiations with Qatar relative to doing the day job, which is churning out A321s. Um, I, sh I should point out that uh, I think uh, Airbus regards Boeing uh, the way China is increasingly regarding the United States, which is it may not be as big of a threat uh, as uh, as we may initially uh, have thought, or that my adversary thinks I am, which is which is very worrying. Speaking of which, um, two interesting uh, developments uh, and interesting reporting uh, this week. Right, uh, one was the United States and Japan have decided to work together not just on new hypersonic uh, systems, but also across the technological piece uh, from. Uh, defense against hypersonics, quantum computing, artificial intelligence. Uh, that is uh, certainly a formidable agreement between two nations that are technological superpowers uh, in their own uh, right. I mean, in all fairness, China's developing a lot of technology, but China got to where it did with a lot of Japanese, American, and South Korean technology, which is being increasingly restricted. Although at this point, I think China might have enough of a foundation and certainly educated enough people at Caltech, MIT, Cambridge, what have you, in order to be good at this game. Um, and then the second one was the, uh, and I cannot believe that it was not deliberate, uh, the uh, um, imagery, satellite imagery, commercial satellite imagery that caught apparently a very interesting looking airplane 
um, uh, flying uh, in uh, the Area 51 uh, test site, uh, which is part of the Nellis complex, uh, at least is how the United States Air Force defines it. We've got a couple of minutes left on the program, but wanted to get, who wants to start us off? Ron, do you want to start this off on uh, science, uh, technology, and actually take a glancing uh, shot at uh, USICA, uh as, w- as well as the competes uh, measures that, uh, right, one, the competes is on the House, USICA is in the Senate. We talked about it on the Friday roundtable a little bit. Talk to us about you know your your sense on all of this, right? Because we were discussing um, a tweet that went out of an airplane, and we concluded it was an upside down wind model uh, that was leaving Lockheed's uh, uh, RCS uh, facility. And if you actually look at what is in this picture and what was on that flatbed, they kind of don't look dissimilar. Um, you know, just walk us through uh, you know th- this uh, all this and. Uh, uh, Richard, I want to get your sense because I know that you watch all of this stuff very closely on the military side as well. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the the imagery that, that we've seen so far of this, and you're exactly right, that, that kind of upside down uh, wind tunnel thing that we saw, and then you know, this other image looked like you can, they drive up, looks like a very low observable um, vehicle, uh, some form of you know, uh, tactical aircraft, uh, most likely flies very fast. Um, so, you know, maybe, maybe we're seeing something emerge here, you know, NGAD or something else. Uh, maybe, you know, I don't want to like read too much into it, but maybe we got better understanding on why, you know, the F-35 rates getting seemingly capped at 156 where there seems to be more demand. So maybe there's another vehicle can, that can start filling that demand. Um, and, you know, maybe there is a replacement for F-22 that, has been under wraps for a while that uh, we didn't we didn't know about. So um, you know, for you know guys like me, it's exciting, right? I mean, the aerospace engineer means like really really thinks these kind of things are 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 extraordinarily cool. So we'll 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 see where this goes. But I mean, it, sometimes I think you see in the in the popular press, it seems like you know the U.S. hasn't been investing in advanced weapon systems, and um, that for sure uh, has not been the case. Uh, you know, I think the uh, the China competitiveness bill is interesting, a little bit different. Um, a lot of focus there has been on you know, perceived supply chain weaknesses, right? So <clears throat> one of those supply chain weaknesses clearly is um, uh, you know, boundaries for more advanced chips. Uh, and you know, that, that's all well and good. We're, we're seeing some potential investment by some of the, the chip manufacturers in the U.S., you know, TSMC uh, in Arizona is uh, case in point. However, um, the, the other side of that is those chip foundries need the raw materials to feed them. Uh, you know, namely the, the rare earths that I guess we all understand are not so rare, but getting them out of the ground is kind of messy. Uh, so, um, you know, that, that has to be sorted out. But uh, I, you know, how can I say, you know, sort of neutrally here, not politically, I am encouraged that um, there is uh, money being earmarked for uh, supply chain weaknesses in the technology supply chain. Um, so why don't I leave it there? Uh, look, I mean, I, I uh, uh, agree with you, right? I mean, we do need national investment. Uh, it could explain, right, as we've discussed on this show, uh, you know, maybe F thirty five numbers are going, you know, are being capped in part because there's something new that's coming aboard. Uh, and I think that this notion that the world has somehow had that the Chinese are a juggernaut. The, the United States has consistently impressed every single nation on the planet with capabilities that were de- decades ahead of where anybody on the planet thought, right? Uh, the, the only question is, do we have enough of these capabilities or are they too boutique in nature given the challenges we face, I think is, is the big challenge. And the big challenge that every time the United States has unmasked capabilities as a deterrent, it's found its adversaries copying those capabilities, uh, unfortunately, uh, a little bit too too quickly for comfort. Uh, R- Richard, uh, I wanna go to you to you know basically take a bite at, at the stuff that uh, Ron said. And then Sash, I wanna get sort of a European sense uh, of all this and how Europeans are registering this and whether or not Europeans, right? I mean, there are always a lot of very clever scientific cooperation things. France tends to be at the heart of pushing these. Uh, and I know that Emmanuel Macron and with France in the EU uh, presidency uh, is, is pushing really, really hard to get some of this stuff uh, going, including pushing some stuff bilaterally with, uh, with the United Kingdom, which has always been a technology partner. You know, R- R- Richard, start us off and then Sash, finish this up. 
yeah, you know, of course, echoing Ron, uh, how could people like us not find this super cool? But, uh, you know, it's also, as he says, super deliberate. I mean, uh, you don't build an aircraft hangar without a roof by accident. Like, whoops, we forgot the roof. You know, I mean, this was deliberate. Now, I'd like to throw a bit of cold, potentially cold. Obviously, we don't know anything about this thing. But, yeah, a bit of cold water, possible cold water. I'm not ready to say that's why they're capping F-35 output. I mean, it's there's so much export demand for that type that you wouldn't have to worry. But, you know, on the other hand, you have to you have to be mindful that it, it might. But anyway, a couple things about what we've seen before. One is that really cool, sleek, impressive new airframe shapes could lead to nowhere. And of course, I remember in particular the X-29 forward swept wing, the X-31 enhanced uh, flight mobil- flight uh, agility. Uh, gosh, I forget, the one with the canards. And, um, you know, for that matter, you got the F-117, which they built 59 of because it was a really cool, fascinating new approach to airframe design, but it didn't have many applications aside from subtonic stealth strike, and that was it. Um, so in other words, it might not mean anything. And second, of course, it's one thing to build, a really cool, cool new aircraft that might represent the future of airframe technology, unlike the X-29 or X-31 or F-117, uh, but still not be weaponized, still not be wired up for war. And, you know, take you back, obviously, uh, how long was the gap between the product flying of the, the, pr- the prototype Rafales, IFAs, uh, obviously, YF-22? I mean, we're talking way over a decade. <laughs> so right. even if it is the future, uh, it might be some time before that future arrives. Uh, and, and we should point out, right, I mean, Boeing uh, is also doing, you know, it could be loyal wingman work, could be unmanned systems work. It could be uh, the prototype uh, effort, right, uh, that we uh, that Will Roper was was talking about, which was a program that Frank Kendall had created and, and launched in partnership with the, uh, 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 DARPA. Uh, uh, before leaving office when he was under Secretary of Acquisition, Logistics and Technology. Sash? Absolutely. Uh, Can I just ask one thing to that, if you don't mind? You know, one thing that I think has crept up on us, and as Ron said, the the RDT&E funding is certainly being provided. But if you were going to allocate that RDT&E, you'd notice one enormous capabilities gap. You know, the rise of peer adversaries, particularly China, but whoops, also, turns out Russia, um, F-35 just isn't an air superiority fighter. The F-22 has an architecture that basically renders it dead sometime in the early 2030s, horribly, no matter how wonderful the air vehicle is. And the F-15EX, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a very nice strike fighter. It's, it's got very impressive capabilities, but it's not the future. So in other words, you've got to do something here. If NGAD isn't real, and I think it, it probably is, and whether or not this air vehicle is or is not NGAD, you got to put some cash here because that's a big capabilities gap. Uh, Sash, uh, we've only got about two minutes left. Uh, bring us bring us home uh, on a European perspective and how all of this is being registered and read in Europe. And also uh, the Chinese uh, cooperation model, right? I mean, the unfortunate reality is if we went back about 10 years ago, United Kingdom wanted to do more in China. France wanted to do more in China. Germany is still reluctant about doing less in China. Uh, and, and now everybody is finding out that they're getting bit in the backside uh, with uh, their technology going into China and coming back as more competitive Chinese industry. Sort of walk us through all of those. Very interesting article uh, in the uh, London Times this weekend about the degree to which Chinese universities are offering UK academics very, very highly paid uh, uh, cooperation deals on interesting uh, elements of technology, which uh, may or may not have dual use. But when you look at the Chinese academics who are on the other side of these deals, they're not dual use. They are all working for the People's Liberation Army. Um, And uh, this is becoming, but I fear very, very slowly, a real political hot potato for the UK because uh, UK academics are clearly prepared to, and it'll be the same in every other country in Europe, but they're clearly prepared to sell their technology and, and their IP to Chinese universities for the right price. And Chinese universities divert it straight to the PLA. It's Pretty depressing, um, but uh, at least this is starting to be a, a you know a known issue now. I'm going to focus very quickly on fixed wing. Um, if the uh, uh, the air vehicle that was revealed last week is NGAD, then Europe, some European countries are going to want to be part of that because it will be it will be 
very, very attractive in terms of capabilities and very attractive in the sense that it would be available sooner than either Tempest or SCAF, probably. Uh, hopefully, that will certainly, I think, be the pitch. I wouldn't underestimate the degree to which doing a, a sort of a semi-reveal like this now um, is part of the marketing approach to, let's say, hypothetically, but it's not, the UK. Uh, the, the Royal Air Force would love to be part of NGAD. Tempest, yeah, great, but they really want to be part of a US programme, um, if possible. And uh, I think that that will be, a, a, you know, that's something that uh, should, we shouldn't underestimate uh, the degree to which it's there to, to, uh, to tempt European countries. Uh, in as well as just to show off uh, US capabilities. Final point I'd make on sort of fixed wing um, uh, aircraft uh, technology and capabilities. There's an awful lot now coming out of France, which suggests that when push comes to shove, France feels that they could go it alone on the next generation of aircraft technologies, just as they did with Rafale, that they don't need Germany in SCAF, and that if Germany makes uh, things difficult in terms of exports, in terms of, uh, you know, the share of technology uh, between France, Germany and so forth. The French will just say, up with this, we need not put. Uh, and um, they will bail and, and, and go it alone. And at that, at that stage, Germany has a really interesting uh, choice to make. If they buy F-35, they might as well just get into NGAD as well, in which case German technology leadership goes back to about the level of the late 1960s. They'll be back producing starfighters again, um, or overhauling and maintaining starfighters again. Or they can, they can come into Tempest, but if they come into Tempest, they're going to have to be uh, much more... Um, uh, you know, agreeable about issues of defence exports than they have been with the French on SCAF so far. Uh, and I'm not convinced that the uh, current German uh, coalition government understands quite how quickly this whole thing could, uh, could, could develop and how weak the German negotiating position is. Uh, and we could see you know, the, the accidental reveal, uh, allegedly, of this uh, air vehicle in, in the US, I think, in that light. Guys, uh, thanks very much. Uh, great discussion as always. Always a pleasure having you on. Uh, and uh, I wish we could do a longer version of this show. And we'll put that to the audience, whether or not they occasionally want us to go <laughs> uh, longer. Um, guys, thanks again. Hope you have uh, a great uh, what's left of the weekend, a great week. And look forward to having you back on again uh, next week. And uh, Ron, best of luck uh, to the kids in the fencing tournament. Agreed to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, I'll pass it along. Thanks very much, Vago. Always a pleasure. Highlight of the weekend, Vago. Thanks for doing this. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.